0: You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where wellbeing matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com, and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I am Vicky Maguire. I'm an education and leadership coach, I work with school leaders to support them to improve their own well-being and that of all their staff I also run group coaching programs for women leaders and I have created the Women Lead Well coaching network in which I provide a supportive network for female school leaders If you are interested in any of those coaching programs that I run or join in the network you can email me at vicky at we uk to find out more so on to today's show we've got Kate Jones with us who is an expert in retrieval practice and the reason that I wanted to get her on the show today is because I think it's really important that as leaders in schools we understand the best practice that is out there so that we can feed that into the work that we're doing in schools and ensure that the teachers working with us are really up to date in terms of how pupils learn and the strategies that they can use that will be effective with their learners. So, Kate Jones is she's written lots of books, she has an amazing understanding of the research and best practice. She knows what all the research is telling us, and she's put her knowledge into books that are really accessible for teachers and for leaders. And I really wanted to talk to her, find out more about how we can start to implement retrieval practice into our practice in schools. You are really going to enjoy this interview. There's so much there that you'll be able to take away and implement in your schools. So here we go. Kate Jones, welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. It's brilliant to have you with us today. How are you doing?
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me because I I do listen to this podcast. So I was really pleased when you got in touch. I'm uh, really just a little bit cold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we were just talking, weren't we, about the move back from where was it you were?
1: So I was in Abu Dhabi for five years teaching and about a month ago I came back to North Wales so I'm still very much
0: adapting. Just to put it into context, um, Kate is wearing a jumper, a very nice jumper but when we started speaking I was a little bit like hmm that looks like it might be a bit warm for the weather in Abu Dhabi but um, yeah no you're you're back in Wales experiencing the cold like the rest of us. Um, so, start us off, Kate, by telling us all about you, a little bit about your career and what you've done and where you are now.
1: Yeah, I've only um, ever been a teacher. I did my A levels, went to university, and at 21 was training to be a teacher. And um, I taught for six years in North Wales, where I'm originally from. Absolutely loved the school, Elvid High School. But I, I'm a history specialist but I became head of RE, I taught Welsh, I was a sole teacher of politics, and that ends up happening quite a lot in education. Yeah. And with a big focus on a knowledge-rich curriculum, that does then bring even more challenges and workload issues, because you've got to try and be confident in a subject that perhaps isn't your expertise. Um, and then in 2016 I relocated to Abu Dhabi. Um, I went on holiday in the February half term and at that point I knew a few people who were going out to Dubai and and the way that things were going in the school I was working at because Welsh teachers are very difficult to find. I was being encouraged to teach more Welsh and less history. And that really, (laughs) because that that upset me. That was a school and I'm still in touch with the school. love the school. That's a school I could have stayed at for life, really. But it was that little bit of a nudge of, you know, trying to encourage me to teach more Welsh, which I'm not a first language Welsh speaker. And I didn't train as a languages teacher. So I went to Abu Dhabi. um, So I stepped down. I was was head of department, um, but I went to Abu Dhabi as a classroom teacher. Uh, And then I moved um, to another school. I've taught in two schools in Abu Dhabi. And then um, just before I left, I was head of history at another amazing school, the British school, Al Qabirat. The reason I left in December, I was actually meant to leave in July, but my replacement couldn't start until January. So that was a little bit strange. um, Okay. uh, Because one of the reasons I wanted to come back was I hadn't been to the UK in two years because of COVID. Yeah. And I was the one who came back regularly, but with all the travel changes and hotel quarantine and things like that, it was quite, it was, it was really difficult. Um, so I made the decision about a year ago, I thought, right, I'm going to move back to the UK. And it was completely personal, really, not professional it was, I need to be near my family. And then I'll think about the the professional stuff once I'm in the UK. Um, But on the side of teaching, I also write, I love writing. I write for educational magazines. I've published six books and got three more on the way wow um, I know I and you know write
0: how... brilliantly may I say oh, I, I love geez. I love your style it's really easy and so because I think when you're in educational books they are dipping dipping, in and out of like I've got <laughs> I've got loads on the go I was going to take a picture on Twitter of the pictures on my bedside table and say does anybody else's bedside table look like this like they're almost falling over at the top sort of they're teetering but they've all got like pages turned over where I've read up to because sometimes I find it hard going but I pick up yours they're really they're really slim and they're really user friendly (coughs) there's Ruby sorry (laughs) (laughs) there's a car going past she's uh she's on guard, she does a good job, um, but they're really easy to just, you can pick one up and you can read the whole thing and then you can just take bits from them, like I think they give a really good overview of the topic, first of all, I'll give you some insight into what the research is saying in that area and then just, it's a bit like they're sort of bite-sized chunks and that's what we need as teachers, don't we?
1: Yeah, absolutely, that's what, when I'm Writing a book, I always had that at the back of my mind. What do I want to read as a classroom teacher? So, you know, that's uh, someone else said that to me write the book that you, you want to read. And it is difficult to pitch books because there'll be lots of teachers, and you see this on Twitter, who are, you know, very up to date and, and it, with all the latest research and the evidence published. And then there are other teachers who aren't so when you're writing a book oh it's very tough because you think well I know there'll be some teachers who know this but there'll be some that don't and I've got to provide this context and I don't want to be patronizing and I don't want to write what's already written I want to write something new so there are lots of challenges with writing books for teachers and especially all the books I've written so far I wrote on top of my teaching roles so that was tough as well but hugely rewarding, the fact that you've said, you know, I love your books, I read them. That's just made my day, so thank you. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I recommend them to people as well. I know there's somebody, that a school that I'm working with are actually trying to do more retrieval practice. So I've recommended yeah. your book and said, you know, well, you've got two on retrieval practice, haven't you, I think, um, and said, use these because they're really easy, really user-friendly, just and I think the ideas that you suggest don't require a lot of additional work. They're things that you can do and just start implementing in your practice without having to go back and sort of rewrite everything that you're doing. They're really easy to just fit into your practice as it is, aren't they?
1: Yeah, that's my mantra. Low effort, Mm -hmm. high impact, low effort for the teacher in terms of workload and planning, because retrieval practice is something that needs to be ongoing and daily so it has to be sustainable hence the low effort but the high impact is so important because in my career I've 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 done things that are probably the other way around that were high effort for me. I invested <laughs> yeah. loads of time and effort and probably didn't have did the impact it, on learning. Did it,
0: involve, did it involve a laminator, scissors, glue, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> envelopes? I used to have, yeah, as I said, I was 21 and I used to have my sisters, I used to live at home with my parents and my sister would be on the laminating, another one would be on the cutting station, another one would be in the envelopes. And it was just this like... Machine operation, and then you do the task. The students would solve it in thirty seconds. And <laughs> you know, it was it was just yeah, very low impact, very high effort. So now switch that. Um, got it the right way round. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I
0: feel from you when I read, um, when I see you, your tweets, and when I read your books, I feel a real passion for you from you for teaching and learning. And I can tell that you probably are like me, you probably have a stack of books with the latest research in and you're constantly trying to go out there and find what the latest research is telling us. And I wonder what your view is on how senior leaders should be in terms of their knowledge of what's what the research is telling us and how that can impact on our practice and then I suppose how you can implement it
1: in your school. Yeah it's so important that it comes from the top so when I I really um I I worked at like I said a brilliant school in the UK but it was when I went international that I was very worried about staying up to date and in touch with what was going on in the UK and I got even more interested in evidence then but the school that I was working at in Abu Dhabi, they they weren't evidence-informed, shall we say. And and actually, they were doing things that my previous school knew were debunked, like learning styles. Um, They were grading lesson observations, um, and on the graded lesson observation sheet, it said, you know, you cater for learning styles. And that was a real shock for me, sort of taking a step back. But then I was reading the research and I was embracing retrieval practice as a classroom teacher. And this was not the whole culture of the school. And that made it really difficult for me telling my students to do something and that this is effective when other teachers weren't saying the same thing. There was actually a few of us, like there was about three of us (laughs) who were sort of reading the research, talking about books, but we knew we were very much. So, um in the minority and it as I said it just made everything really difficult and then um so I had um I taught year 10 the whole year group which is quite unusual usually teachers you know will have different classes but I had this whole year group um, there was two classes and I taught them for two years so that obviously all of the results were were well, my class results and the results were phenomenal they were absolutely amazing and um, it was down to a range of things that uh, the students were incredible in lots of ways with their motivation attendance everything like that but we had been doing two years of regular retrieval practice and because they were in year 10 that they, they just embraced everything I told them to because this was their first exam class I had year 12 and they were rejecting everything I was saying because they'd just done their GCSEs without using retrieval practice as much and with a lot of highlighting and underlining. So they didn't want <laughs> to move away from those things. Those Even things though-
0: work, Kate, don't you know?
1: My well, you sons know have
0: told me sitting, looking at a book and highlighting some stuff, that's, that's what works. My, sons, my, so my older son's GCSE results <laughs> would probably not support that theory. <laughs>
1: You know, I mean, the argument is any revision is better than no revision which of course but that's a weak argument and highlighting underlining rereading just takes a huge huge amount of time and all students do do retrieval practice when they do past papers and so on but Um, So this year, 10 class. And then two years later, the results were phenomenal. And all of a sudden I became golden girl. The spotlight was on me and it was, oh, Kate, what have you been doing with this class? You know, what's the secret? Well, it isn't a secret. It's quite well known now. um, And it's called retrieval practice. And they said, well, you share it with staff. Uh, And I did. And that's how I started the whole Retrieval practice. I shared it with my colleagues and then I wrote about it in a blog. And then I thought, actually, we're not at a point where lots of people know about this. So I'm going to write this book. But I know what it's like to be an evidence informed classroom teacher working in a school that isn't evidence informed. And You you need to have both. So, I always ask this question when I sort of do these presentations. I say, you know, what makes a great teacher and what makes a great school? And a great teacher, you know, never stops learning, and a great school never stops improving. Now, a great teacher who wants to learn will flourish at a school that just wants to keep improving, but a school will only keep improving if it has teachers who want to keep learning so they go hand in hand together and in order to have this evidence informed culture it can't be that you know small group of teachers in the corner of the staff room talking about a book they read it has to be across the whole school and that is where the leadership come in with that
0: yeah it's hard that isn't it because it's almost like going back to school uh, I, when I was at school I was quite a high achiever and other, other I suppose my peers would look at me and say oh you're such a swat you're such a swat you're this you're that you're always looking at and I'd be like well I'm not one of the things that I did actually to achieve well in my GCSEs was I wrote lists of questions out I went back to all my my notes and I just wrote questions for myself and I answered them and that was my main way of revising but I was known as the SWAT. and then when I started teaching I was, I don't know if you'll remember, um, but there was something called Teachers TV and was a channel on television and i used to watch it we had sky and i watched teachers tv and i used to i I was just really interested in developing my practice and seeing what other people were doing and once again i got that oh my god what do you mean you watch teachers tv you're reading what you're doing what people would look at me and be quite derisory about (laughs) about what i was doing it felt like i was back at school being called a a swat again but because there wasn't a culture of it in the school and it's it's important that leaders create that culture in which it's not it, like you're not unusual if you're interested in improving your own teaching.
1: I have experienced the same. I started going to teach me events uh, in my spare time And I had a few comments about me being sad and a loser and spending my spare time that way, which, and this is from teachers now, you know, professionals. um, And that was really quite difficult. Um, And again, that's what it comes down to with the culture. And my professional development target at the time was something about an interactive whiteboard. It was a target that I didn't set. And I never had training on the interactive whiteboard, didn't really get it. <laughs> it always stressed me out, but I learned how to use it for when the teacher observed me and then it was tick done. Oh, thank goodness, I never have to look at that interactive whiteboard again. Um, <laughs> that's just me. <amazing>. <laughs> no, I agree. Interactive whiteboards <laughs> are
0: a bit of a fad, aren't they?
1: It's, well, it's I- another
0: one. It's high, high effort. For-
1: yeah, it caused me more hassle than, you know, yeah. um, high impact but um that that was initially how I saw professional development as something as a tick box as something that I was told something I just had to do you know a a hoop I had to jump through and then I realized actually no this is really helpful this is really interesting and I I can become a better teacher for it but again it's it is difficult when you don't work it in an environment and you never will work in a school where everyone has that attitude and that oh perhaps there is a school out there but I'm sure there's always one or two who will roll their eyes who perhaps you know feel like they've heard this stuff before or whatever
0: that's one of the issues isn't it that when teachers have been teaching for a while things have come and gone and it's like oh here we go with another thing that we'll do for a few months and then it'll all be forgotten about so I may as well not put the effort in in the first place to really
1: do it because in x number of months nobody will be doing it anyway. Well yeah and I do understand why teachers are sceptical because if they've been through a cycle where they were told about um, learning styles where they were told, like I was in my teacher training year and then that school I returned when I went to Abu Dhabi and I was told plan lessons for visual auditory kinesthetic learners. And then you're told, oh, actually the stuff we made you do has been debunked and it's nonsense. However, now we want you to do this. Then of course there will be that sort of backlash and that reluctance and thinking, oh my goodness, is this going to be debunked in a few years? Am I wasting my time and effort? So I do really understand the frustrations. And that's why it's so important that we get it right, that we don't just jump on bandwagons. And that when it comes to being evidence informed, you know, sort of, we're very thorough with that as well.
0: I think we, we have to understand as well the limitations of research and education and what it's telling us, don't we? Because, you know, I've, I've I've read things where it's been compared to, you know, a surgeon who's doing a heart, like a heart operation, a bypass operation or whatever. You know, you use all the research that's gone to make sure you're using the most up-to-date techniques and you, you get it all right. And teaching is not like, it's not like, Doing a heart bypass, is it? It's some of the comparisons are not because every time you open someone up, their heart is pretty much exactly the same, and you you find the same. I suppose you find the same arteries or whatever bits in the same places. And if you cut here, this is what you find. And and generally, once someone's out, everybody is pretty much. When I say body, I mean like person is pretty much the same on the inside. In teaching. That's not the same. Everybody has pretty much a similar brain, but the external factors, the extraneous stuff, the home life, their experiences of learning, how they feel in the classroom, the environment, the relationship with the teacher, whether they've had any breakfast that day, even, you know, there are so many factors that mean research is never as reliable as it could be. So
1: yeah well just to add to that and there's been criticism of research about learning that has been conducted in laboratories and university experiments and so on controlled conditions yeah but classrooms are very messy when it comes to research because as you just said there's a huge amount of variables however variables
0: that's the word i was looking for yes
1: yeah (laughs) well factors but they are all these variables even within the same school you know I I taught um when I first moved to Middle East I taught in a school where I had that year 10 the two year 10 classes I taught boys and girls they were it was a split site so I would go and teach you know my year nine girls lesson run across the building to teach year nine boys completely different you know yeah. same age group, same ages but the, the gender the environment or it was even t- times of the day because I would have the girls yeah. first the morning and I would have the boys straight after lunch and I would come in yeah. and I'm like, miss, and I've, I've been playing football I was like oh my goodness and um, I
0: suppose there's the <laughs> there's the interaction in the classroom as well nobody ever says exactly the same thing in one lesson as they do in another do they, they bring different opinions and ideas
1: where yeah, it really sort of blew my mind the working in that context and how different the lessons were and I've taught um you know I've taught in different schools and I've taught I remember in the first school in Wales and I would have you know one or two year nine classes or, or three and they would be different classes again in terms of behavior and effort and abilities and so on so there are all of these variables but we are now, especially with retrieval practice, moving more towards looking at research in a classroom context. So in 2021, a lot of the research published about retrieval practice was a review of retrieval practice in the classroom conditions. However, there's still lots of variables. So we can't get this black and white answer from the evidence findings but we can have guidance from it. And I always say that the research for me um, does three things. It will either inform, so tell me something that I never knew before, which is totally what the research with cognitive psychology has done. It's given me a lot more insight. Um, It can actually challenge my practice. So make me think about something that I'm doing, reflect and perhaps adapt or do it differently. Or thirdly, it can confirm what I'm already doing in the classroom, that I should keep doing that. And I think the hardest one is the, well, some, some, for some teachers, it could be the challenge aspect. But really, when research confirms what we're doing, sometimes people say, oh, I don't need the research. I could have told you that. But no, it's still valuable, even if it is just confirming, keep doing this, this is you know, working, this is effective, don't give up on it that's not something to be dismissed. Um, and the same the, with the research where I said it, it can challenge. Um, a good example that springs to my mind is that I was always told to start a lesson with an attention grabber to hock and excite the learners. But Daniel Willingham um, wrote in his book, as a Cognitive Scientist, that students will arrive to your lesson um, it, engaged and interested and then mid lesson their attention will and focus will drop so if you were to have an attention grabber it would be better placed in the middle of a lesson so that's just an example of how I thought oh okay that makes sense I might do things a little bit differently now and think about that and keep that in mind but then sometimes it could be quite hard to when you read research and you think oh well I'm not sure I think well I always say I, my interest in retrieval practice and research and so on is a mixture of being evidence informed, but also the experience matches. So the evidence is very positive. My experiences are very positive. And if I had bad experiences as a teacher, going, this isn't working, the results are bad, then I obviously wouldn't have been so passionate. But my classroom experience, absolutely matches the the overwhelming amount of evidence and they do they do have to marry up because if you're following the evidence and it's not working and something isn't right and your teacher got an instinct then you have to do things differently so it's it's not easy applying it to the classroom it's definitely possible and it can have a positive impact um but even with retrieval practice and people say oh i've already always done this i've always done a quiz i do think there's an element of truth in that but in terms of the inform side i wasn't aware of the limitations of working memory and long-term memory and i could easily teach content without regularly revisiting it and then we would do an assessment and then students would have forgotten because i haven't mentioned something for two or three months so I do get frustrated when some people say, "No, I've always done space retrieval practice." I say, "Well, I didn't know about that. Why, won't, why weren't people singing it from the rooftops like I am now doing retrieval practice?" So yeah, there's lots of um, things to think about, and the variables and the different approaches and different outcomes. But for me, it's just it just it motivates me to keep learning and keep trying to be a better teacher. Do you worry that retrieval practice is going to be another
0: thing that people go, Oh, this is, this is the answer to all our problems. This is how we can become a better school and how we can improve our results. So they go, right. Um, superficially retrieval practice. Okay. Everybody has to start a lesson with a retrieval activity. So every single lesson in the school every day starts with that. And this is what you must do. And then it, they're looking for something that they can go, that works, plonk, let's do it here, without actually really understanding why retrieval practice works, what the link is to things like you were saying, like working memory, cognitive load theory, um, Mm -hmm. the way that the brain works, and metacognition as well, and the pupils understanding why they're doing this. Because like I alluded to before, children think that learning is about reading something and maybe highlighting a few things but there's much more to it isn't there do you worry that schools will just try to look for the easy they're looking for the easy fix and they'll go yep we can do that and it's not done well it's not embedded and there's very little understanding of why it works when it does work
1: Yes, because retrieval practice in a way you could say is quite easy to implement by saying, right, we want you to quiz and test children and that's you know low cost and low effort. So in some ways it could be very easily done. Um, however, I do think retrieval practice is vulnerable to being oversimplified and also overcomplicated. And when I did uh, write retrieval practice, I had a jigsaw Uh, my teacher learning jigsaw puzzle and retrieval practice was one piece and then another piece was literacy and there was feedback and assessment and space practice and I really wanted to stress that because as much as I'm a big advocate for retrieval practice it's one piece of the puzzle and in terms of quizzing well we've got to actually teach the content before we quiz our students on it it actually has to get to long-term memory so we can't skip the encoding stage and go to retrieval practice and there have been schools that have said yep we do retrieval practice we have five multiple choice questions at the start of every lesson but there's limitations with that.
0: Before we find out more about retrieval practice from Kate, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics, from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Headteacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Headteacher Chat. It's what her teachers are talking about.
1: Now let's get back to the interview. That doesn't allow any opportunity for free recall and um, elaboration. And there's lots of pros and cons for multiple choice questions. They could be quite difficult to design. Yeah. Um, so I, I I think, yes, there is that, that problem about, you know, Ofsted, the 2019 report, mentioned retrieval practice cognitive science which i think is a brilliant thing but then some schools have thought oh well we're quite new to this right we've got to do this because after it could be coming in next week um so there, there can be perhaps this this panic and this let's just let's just do retrieval practice without that careful thought and consideration but having said that i am aware of loads of schools around the world that are reading about retrieval practice, trying different ideas and strategies and techniques. So I'm more aware of that from the schools that I have worked with or that I've been to visit. Um, And it was funny, I went to visit one school. This was uh, in another country internationally. And I had a tour of the school and they knew that I was the author of the retrieval practice books. And it was like learning walks. So I was just dropping into sort of lessons and they just stopped what they were doing and did retrieval practice. And I just, <laughs> a, I bit like, yeah, a bit like everybody used to do
0: the literacy. If someone walked in, do, yeah. do the literacy thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I understood, I thought, oh my goodness. I, I understood why they were doing it to show yeah. me. Oh, look, look how we use retrieval. but. That is obviously, if I, especially, you know, if I was a senior lead leader doing the learning, well, I wouldn't want to just, just see retrieval practice because that's not <laughs> how teaching no. and learning works. <laughs> as I said, come back to the puzzle, it's one piece. So that was funny, but I did think, well, I would have liked to have seen other aspects because there's other parts of the teaching and learning process. And also that's not just me as well. Like I would never <laughs> think a lesson is bad because where's your retrieval practice I, I, the I think don't know the, the, thing, the thing as well is that we've been conditioned
0: almost to think that like teaching is a tick box thing so many people have said to me yeah but I just want you to get up there and do a session on what makes an outstanding lesson and it would really frustrate me because I would say It doesn't work like that. Like you can, I'm so glad that we've moved away from tick boxes because people, if they're looking for the answer, well, if I do this, this, and this, will that be an outstanding lesson? And that's the concern for me. That's, that's sort of what you're alluding to there, isn't it? That someone's thought, well, someone's coming in, we're doing retrieval practice. I'll do that. And then that will mean that I'll be judged to be, you know, delivering outstanding learning or whatever and it's about it's about more than that isn't it it's about senior leaders helping teachers to understand that you know teaching is it's it's the word nebulous right it's not you can't pin it down can you and that you have to develop your own style but it has to be based on what works, but it's what works in a broader sense. And it's what works it's what works for you. And it's what works for that cl- specific class that you've got sitting in front of you. And if you're leading on teaching and learning in a school, you've got to create that understanding of that with your staff.
1: The school I've just left, the British School Alcabiber has a fantastic reputation, has the outstanding label from the inspections. However, they are very keen to keep learning, improving, and getting better. And the school I worked at before that was also outstanding and had a completely different attitude. We're outstanding, just yep. keep doing what we're doing. Yep. And that was the school that graded lesson observations. And I had a really big issue with that. And by the time I left, they stopped grading because I sort of would not stop going on about it. But teachers it was it was a horrible culture with the grading of lesson and it still happens especially internationally um, I actually met with um, someone from KHDA which is the offset equivalent in Dubai and I tried to argue my case to tell them to stop grading lessons because they still do and they found it really interesting my points but some of the things I remember happening was I remember uh, I read this brilliant book making every lesson count I went to give it to a teacher who I worked with. I think you'll really like this. And he said, Kate, I'm outstanding. I always get graded outstanding. I don't don't need to read any books and do anything. You know, my results are great. My outstanding is great. That's it, you know. And I was just gobsmacked. And I thought, I never want to be like that. But that's a Uh, microcosm of the microcosm of Ofsted, isn't
0: it? The schools are, that are outstanding that can create that feeling of we're outstanding so what we're doing works let's just carry on doing the same thing and so many schools I think have fallen foul of that more recently with the new Ofsted inspection framework in that they were outstanding but they've got they're not anymore at the school I worked in was outstanding and I found that to be a struggle going into that school and trying to improve teaching and learning with staff who I don't think it, I, I don't blame them for it I blame the system that they would say well we're outstanding look outside we've got an outstanding you know yeah, it says yeah. on the gates we're outstanding so why are you coming in here trying to tell us how to change our practice and it's yeah. hard that isn't it
1: it's really tough and that's when you got to think about and I know it's not easy to say move schools because especially if you've got a family in your home and it could be very difficult um, and in terms of the graded lesson observation someone I, I published love to teach at this point and someone said to me the person who was observing my lesson said well you've written a book about teaching so obviously I'm going to give you outstanding <laughs> so you told me that before my lesson so that's how just sort of it was just so, so I could not have done anything really but I mean I thought well I don't really know what the point of this is because I already know what feedback I'm getting regardless of what I do so it is very tough when like I said you're that classroom teacher and you don't work in the in the right environment the right culture and that's why and it was interesting it was the headmaster my previous school his name was Mark Lepard and I spoke to him and when I joined and he said, yeah, we know our areas of weakness. We, we celebrate our staff and we recognize how well we've done. And we're really proud of our achievements, but you know, we don't take our foot off the gas. We keep going, we keep improving. And I just thought, yeah, you are the leader that I want to work for. And he supported me, championed me as he has with all of his staff. And as I said, with retrieval practice, it absolutely comes from the top and, um, In that school as well, the deputy head teacher Nigel Davis, he's also incredible and I would he'd be the person I go to to talk to about teaching and learning and I would give him a book and he would recommend something to me and he. He was just so lovely anyway, but he, he also did a lot to create this culture. He sent out a weekly blog that was about Rosenshine or cognitive load theory. And it was a quick, I've done, you know, a lot of reading this week. This is the one I'd recommend. It takes five minutes to read. I'd highly recommend it and we can talk about it another time. So there there's small things and there are sort of bigger things that, that leaders... And, and I up- think
0: that's, that's your role as a leader, isn't it? It's to look at the bigger picture of what's happening and the the research and the writing that's out there and sift through it and pick yeah. the the most appropriate bits and and do it piecemeal with your staff that's not the right word is it but in a sort of a bite-sized way so that it's easy staff can look at it and think oh that might work for me I'll try it because like you're saying it's it's low effort for high high impact I think just before we move on, I just wanted to point out the irony of the fact that Ofsted decided to stop giving lessons grades, because they realised the difficulty and the challenge of that. Um, but they still grade schools. Yeah. You know, there's a bit of irony there, isn't there?
1: Well, I've, um, I've never experienced Ofsted because I've never taught in England. Um, so I'm Ofsted neutral. <laughs> and uh, I spoke to Professor Daniel Mers, who was head of research at Ofsted. And I asked him that question and he was very firm against grading lesson observations. Um, but then he, he sort of said about the pros and the cons for when it comes to schools. And he said about how parents quite like the grade and things in the community and, and how it could be something to strive forward as a community and as a team. And, and I'm not an advocate for grading schools but he was able to, you'll have to interview him, <laughs> he'll be able to explain this much better than I can, but he was able to get across the differences with the whole school in comparison to grades and individual teachers, which I thought, okay, that's... But he still said, you know, there's still issues and problems with it. And as I've said, i worked in three schools. The second school that I've mentioned, um, it, that was outstanding, to me it wasn't. Um, the one in Wales, it was it was amazing, um, and then the one I've just left, yes, incredible, and then the school I worked at in between, it was guaranteed to get outstanding for various reasons, but I don't think any of the staff would have described it that way for various reasons. All the students, either all the parents, <laughs> but yeah. it was a badge that we had that was all over social media, all over the school, and it was just. Yeah, it was just, and
0: also a a grading can become out
1: out of date within a year. Well, you know, there's there's all sorts of um, issues with that, Um, and I understand current is it? Yeah, and especially with COVID and everything, it's we've we you know schools have got different things to deal with now, and it's it's really tough. So you've mentioned, you talked about spaced practice
0: and um, a few years ago probably 2017 I came across the work of now the name just complete his name just completely escaped me a while ago but I'm sure it's Robert Bjork oh um, yeah <laughs> and and I was really interested in the spacing and interleaving that he he um, promotes and did some work on it with with staff in the school where I was so can you tell us a little bit about that you've you've actually you've spoken to Robert Bjork and his wife haven't you
1: I am in touch with them quite regularly yeah. I was so, like Whoa! Yeah. I bow <laughs> down at the altar of the <sighs> Honestly, when you said Rob Bjork, oh, I was going to mention him anyway because uh, Dylan William describes him as the world-leading expert on memory. And I co-authored an article uh, with Bob. He likes to be called. But um, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, they're at UCLA. They've been doing this research on memory for decades. And do check out um, your listeners, their website, The Forgetting Lab. Um, I think um, if you Google the Bjorks Forgetting Lab, it's incredible how much free research is available, the videos, the interviews. And I am really lucky because I have sent questions to, to Robert and Elizabeth and said, I don't quite understand this. Can you help me? Um, I have sent um, him something that I've recently been working on and act, uh, he checked it for accuracy. So I am very, very fortunate in, in that sense. But they were brilliant. And um, I've spoke to them a few times and they're, they're really supportive and encouraging because they've been doing this, as I said, for decades, like 40 years. And it's taken a long time to get to the classroom so they they they've watched some of my presentations on YouTube (laughs) when they told me I was like oh my goodness I didn't realize and then I was really embarrassed you're coloring up at the thought of that oh I know (laughs) I I was really embarrassed I was like oh my goodness um uh, but they were really pleased to see how a classroom teacher has taken this and has has said, here's a resource, here's an idea, here's how I've used it in the classroom. So the Bjorks, I just, uh, I dedicated retrieval practice to to them because they've just taught me and and so many other teachers so much about memory. So if anyone listening is particularly interested in memory, then they are the go-to people. Now, in terms of space practice, well, what's quite common with studying is cramming, um, massed practice. Um, we've probably all done that, where you know you cram the night before or two days before, and th- that can help very short term, but it's not good for long term learning. So especially if they're doing a mock exam or an assessment, well, we really want that to help them with their long-term learning that they could use again, or even their final exams, you know, all of that, that knowledge and everything, we want them to be able to remember. Um, so the opposite of, of cramming is spacing out practice. So if a student was to do, you know, seven hours of study in one day, then they've crammed their, their study. But if they were to do little and often, So one hour a day across seven days. So you've got, let's say, two students. They've both done seven hours worth of study. Well, the research has shown that the students who've spaced out their practice will perform better. So they both, although let's just assume that they, because the person cramming might not be using retrieval practice or they spacing might not, but let's just say, the student who has you using retrieval practice who is spacing it out will perform better. And I, um, Robert Bjork does say that, that actually, when it comes to space practice, the evidence, you know, there's there's a lot of positive evidence. I suppose um, it makes sense. It, it makes me think
0: of languages and how yeah. we learn in languages and how you you start with the basics and you build up on it, and you're always coming back to the basics and and it's that it's sort of the building blocks and always returning to and you can see how that works and how when when you come back to someone I learned French at school and I got an A so I was pretty good at it, Um, but I would go I've completely forgotten it all, but when you start to use it and you start to draw on it actually it's, a lot of it is still there. It's just being stored in a different part. It's, I imagine it like a filing cabinet, your brain, you know, like all the bits at the front of the stuff that you use regularly. And then the stuff that you don't, you keep right in the back of the filing cabinet. And, and so sort of that way of learning languages is deeply embedded in our brains, isn't it? If, because of the way that we've learned it, which strikes me as being that idea of spaced learning,
1: well, there's so many areas of life where you would never cram. An athlete would never cram the day before. no. No, they <laughs> wouldn't, would they? That's ridiculous. No. We, laugh, but we, we go and, running and around I'm, the track, like, yeah, all you know day, what? the day
0: before you've got a race. Yeah,
1: <laughs> no. I'm not going to prepare for months, but the day before, A great example. And, and the same with a musician, with a recital. You know, it, if a musician has a recital, They're not just going to, you know, (laughs) be playing the day before. And it's stressful because you've left it last minute as well. Yeah. The stress that comes with it and students, and I did this in uni, when you're cramming and you might not sleep and you might drink energy drinks and then all those things have a negative impact. But when you give that example to a student, especially if they are athletic and say, well, how would you prepare? And then they think, oh, no, I would never do that. That's so stupid. I think, well, why do you think that it's okay? And it applies to learning that you can cram and, and not space it out. And we know anything for it to be long-term. The same with a sort of a diet. You, that has to be long-term. If you want to lose weight, you're going yeah. to have to lose weight gradually every week. You will not just say, right, I'm not going to eat tomorrow and I'm going to lose two stone. It just doesn't work like that. So it makes sense when we think about it like that, but yet students genuinely believe that cramming works for them. And sometimes they think it works and other times it's just due to lack of organisation, that they've left it late and they haven't planned and they haven't prepared. So then that could be that's another thing that we have to help our students with. Um, And yeah, Professor John Dunlosky, he's amazing as well. And he um, wrote "Strengthening the Student Toolkit and Toolbox, sorry, and that's free as a PDF online. And he took 10 popular study strategies and he ranks them in order of effectiveness. And at the top was retrieval practice and space practice as being the most powerful, the most effective. And then in the middle, we've got Interleaving, which he described as promising but and I spoke to him about interleaving because I said I still can find interleaving interleaving links in with curriculum design and the way that you teach a topic so interleaving is the opposite of blocking so um it's more widely used in maths than other subjects so if you were to have a a topic you think I'm going to teach this topic move on to the next topic move on to the next topic whereas instead you might have two or three topics that are going on at a similar time and it does feel a little bit messy and confusing but that also promotes space practice as well now I'm a history teacher and I've there's a little bit of controversy about interleaving in history. That um, I, I suppose
0: that... because you're coming backwards and forwards, and there's no sense yes. of chronology to it.
1: That's essentially, exactly yeah. it the chronology issue. So I have it, and this is why I'm I'm always reluctant. I, I will talk about interleaving. I've read about interleaving, but retrieval practice is something that I do day in day out in the classroom. Whereas interleaving. It just if I think about the GCSE topics, we did um three topics of 20th century. You know, we had Nazi Germany, Cold War Vietnam. There was no way I was going to interleave that. There was no way I was going to have a lesson on Nazi Germany. And then the Berlin Walls falling down. But you can introduce you can do retrieval
0: practice in that, can't you? So you can be doing yes. Nazi Germany and still have some little retrieval activities on the yes. Cold War or whatever. In English, I find interleaving works because to do Macbeth at the start of year 10 and then do some reading comprehension then do some writing work then do um Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde then by the time you come back to Macbeth for an exam at the end of year 11 and it's nearly two years ago and it's a it's a huge text it to me it does make sense to do act one of Macbeth yeah and then do some reading and writing then you could do the first three chapters of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, then some more reading and writing practice, then you could come or you you could do part of your other play or some poetry, then come back to act two of Macbeth and do, for me in English, it seems to be a potential, like an option that I would explore and it, it just by nature of the fact that it helps with the forgetting curve because you've done a, a, wow. a novel and your characters and there's, there's all sorts of meaty things to get your teeth into that they've forgotten by the time you come back to it. And it's almost like teaching it again from scratch when you come back to it. Um, but I can see how there would be challenges. And that's where I think that's where knowledge of your subject comes in. I think right back at the start, you referred to the, the challenge of like, this content and knowledge rich curriculum, you were talking about how um, you've taught outside your specialism. And I think in the current educational climate, that is really difficult because I think even subject specialists don't have the requisite subject knowledge to teach to that level that they're required to teach. So, for example, if you're teaching science, and you, your specialism is biology, but you've got to teach physics and chemistry, and you're teaching it to A-level level, level
1: yeah.
0: but you might not have all of the knowledge that you that you need because you've not done it to degree level. You did a biology degree, and it's the same in English. You can't possibly know every poem, every, every text, every play, um, and there are some challenging um, plays. So in terms of subject knowledge, what's the... How do
1: you
0: go on then? Go on then. (laughs) I don't even have to ask the question. I don't have to phrase it.
1: Well, I think I (laughs) saw where you were going in terms of our subject knowledge. My answer is we use retrieval practice, and that I genuinely believe that we should use that as teachers, whether it's refreshing our subject knowledge or to just help build our confidence or to strengthen it. And then we should tell our students that this is what we do. Or what I've done is I've used retrieval practice that you mentioned in English and how many texts there are. I arrived at school and I was told, you're teaching this at A level. I never studied it. It, I'd never taught it before. So I I had very little knowledge. Um, It was about Russia, a certain period that I I just didn't know that much about. (laughs) So I created quizzes. I waited, I tested myself. And then I used those quizzes with my students so that I, I think that's where you would go in what do we do with all this challenge of the subject yeah. knowledge is absolutely harness the benefits of the and students. that would that would work like this <laughs> the kids would say so in Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde what happens in
0: chapter six or what where does that happen and where does that and I'd be like oh my goodness I don't really know this I know the story and <laughs> but because like initially when we had to start teaching it and I'd only read it the once to prepare myself and I've like I've read it probably five or six times since then but you're absolutely right if I used retrieval practice I could be writing myself the questions that I know the children are going to ask me and go back and find out where that is and um so it can be useful to teachers as well in terms of really I suppose developing not developing that subject knowledge but really just strengthening, strengthening your subject knowledge it. and just deepening it a little bit
1: and the confidence as well when you yes don't have a retrieval task or even if you've got some wrong you know where the gaps are in your knowledge you could do the quiz again but that really will help well from my experience has helped me boost my confidence because I have quizzed myself and, and it's also leading my example for the students as well um, and then sometimes students think, but actually, Miss, you've got a degree in history and why don't you know this? And, uh, <laughs> you know, why are you yeah. quiz yourself? But actually how memory works as well, even if I teach content every year, but we have retrieval strength and storage strength. So the storage strength, and this is, again, based on the work of the Bjorks, the storage strength is how well embedded information is in long-term memory, and that doesn't decrease, unless there's been physical damage to the brain, which is very extreme. But retrieval strength can fluctuate. Retrieval strength refers to how... Yeah, and that's like I was saying about languages, isn't it? Yeah, and how accessible that is. So, Mm. yes, I've studied this and I've taught it before, but I haven't revisited it, let's say, in two years. I haven't taught it. So the retrieval strength will be low. So I need to give a boost and a refresher... To boost that retrieval strength. Now, just to
0: finish, just to finish off. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Then, sorry. Um, this is all to do with the forgetting
1: curve as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. can you
0: just describe that for the for the listeners?
1: Yeah. So the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, and that's um, really interesting because this is from 1885. So sometimes <laughs> teachers see this and go, "Whoa, why is this really out of date research being shared?" But it has been replicated many, many times to have similar findings. Um, So, Ebbinghaus, and it is quite unusual, and how he conducted an experiment on himself (laughs) in terms of nonsense syllables, which we don't do as teachers. We don't teach things that we consider to be nonsense, but
0: apart from in phonics, well, in primary school, but yeah.
1: Take the, um, the nonsense and the fact that he's he's experimenting on himself aside. He wanted to look at memory and, and basically the curve will show how how memory rapidly and that you could just Google the forgetting curve and, and you'll see it. And there's lots of illustrations and explanations, but uh, how quickly a memory declines. And the reason why retrieval practice is so important is we can disrupt the forgetting curve we can interrupt it. So if you don't, basically this is saying it's got after 20 minutes, after an hour, after a day, and if you don't revisit these things, then they can be forgotten, or like I just said with retrieval strength, become very difficult to access and to remember, hence why we have to prevent that. We have to interrupt and disrupt that curve with regular retrieval practice? Um, And there are still unanswered questions and there's questions that I don't think we'll ever get the answer to because again, there's so many variables. So for example, a teacher might say to me, exactly how long should I wait from teaching new content to doing a retrieval practice task? Well, the reason I can't give a specific answer to that as much as I'd like to, I could say next lesson, but that next lesson could be tomorrow or it could be next week. And we know there are subjects that see their students once a week and some that see them four times a week. It also depends on the complexity of the topic. And it depends if it links in with prior knowledge as well. Um, And there is this guidance to allow some forgetting, but not too much forgetting. So the moment that students are about to forget it, quiz them but i'm not sure how helpful that is really because we don't know exactly when that point would be so I think we also have to think about one of the things that i i think going back
0: to when i got my job as a deputy um one of the things that i talked about is teaching the children these things from year seven yeah. so that they've got those skills and and that we implement retrieval practice and um effective revision strategies from year seven as homeworks because yeah. a lot of the homework that we set is absolutely pointless but if we set retrieval activities for the children write 10 questions write a 10 question quiz on what we learned in that lesson or what we've studied in the last two weeks and things like that help them right um i think you were talking about revision postcards weren't you i always used to teach mine sort of romeo and julia act act one scene three on your postcard you do a little uh, mind map of that scene and then you turn it over and you write the questions on the back. And then you ask yourself the questions. If you, if you need to, you can turn it back over and look at the mind map to answer the questions. And we, we should be teaching the children these strategies from early on because the more, the more the curriculum builds up, the more retrieval you have to do. And yeah. you've got to be very selective and this is why I think it comes from senior leadership because senior leadership teams have to give departments the time to plan effectively for these activities, so class-based ones and home-based ones, and to know, like, to have conversations about what's the stuff that the kids forget, which mm-hmm. bits do they forget really easily, because funnily enough, kids cling on to some things, like they will never forget that Of Mice and Men has a cyclical structure. And they'll bang on about it forever, (laughs) but they'll forget some really other some other really important things. So it is important that senior leaders actually give time for departments to to plan that. But also that we teach the children all of these techniques and strategies and get them like actually becoming independent so that when they do their GCSEs or their A-levels, they've
1: already got the toolkit and they know what to do. Yeah, my next book is for students um, and it's The Secrets of Successful Study, How to Be Revision Ready because absolutely that reason. It's one thing for the teachers to know, but the students have got to understand why we do this and they need to be doing this independently as well with the flashcards and with the study and it can really just change everything um it can you know boost student confidence it can reduce anxiety they can perform better um reach their potential or exceed their potential so it is the earlier the better that's why i made the point about the year 12s who i was trying to say about retrieval practice but they'd already developed bad study habits so they didn't want to know (laughs) and it was really tough um and again you know it almost felt it wasn't too late but uh, when you're doing something just before the exam saying oh you should be doing space practice you think why are you telling me this like two weeks before the exam because i've only yeah. you know i haven't got that time Was september is the time with our classes to start talking about that not to start saying exams exams but study strategies um and the parents as well the parents and the families because sometimes Parents will say, "I don't know why my child didn't do well on this assessment." I saw them revising; they were rereading, they were highlighting and underlining. You know, I've seen them, and of course, don't doubt that. However, if the parents knew what the effective strategies were, they could intervene, they could get involved, they could quiz. Oh, so am I right that I'm you you're doing some work within a drive?
0: Yes, yes. So I I'm, love, I love, love, yeah. love their stuff it's and so good
1: parents. and it's loads the resources are free yeah uh, innerdrive.co.uk free posters um, for teachers in wales so they've also got them in welsh um posters about memory about sleep about study about mindset they're for students teachers parents an incredible website so do check that out if anyone hasn't already yeah brilliant uh, uh, we are like we've been talking
0: for well over an hour now so <laughs> but it's all really good stuff so thank you so much Kate so tell us where people can where can they find your books and um, where can they find out more about you if they want to um, and the work that you do
1: all of my books are on Amazon and they're all published with John Cat. so they're available at johncat.com. I'm on social media Instagram and Twitter at Kate Jones underscore teach. I have a Facebook page, Kate Jones Teaching. And my own website is lovetoteach87.com.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. Hopefully we can talk to you again at some point because I don't think I've yeah. really explored everything oh. that it's it's possible to explore. So thank you and come back and join us again another thank time. Thank you.
1: I really enjoyed it.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Kate. Wow, Kate was so great to talk to. Her passion for improving teaching and learning and doing it in a research based way is so catching. I just really enjoyed talking to her. It's so good to talk to someone who's so passionate about what they do. And there were lots of things to take away from what we talked about in that interview. Firstly, don't just do something without careful thought and consideration first and I think this goes for anything in a school first of all is it going to bring something to your school in terms of improvements for pupils will it improve pupil outcomes that's the question to ask and also will it help staff to be better teachers will it improve their workload Is it going to increase their workload? If it is, you need to do something else instead. But be really thoughtful and considerate in the way that you go about implementing change. Yes, I totally agree that retrieval practice is a great thing to implement in schools, but don't just think you can just start doing it straight away. It takes thought, it takes consideration. Why are you doing it? Have you gathered all the data that suggests that you need something else like retrieval practice? Think about it and plan it carefully first. Trial it first so that you get to iron out the creases and you can see what works and what doesn't in your context. And that's really important that you think about the context of your own school and how something like retrieval practice will work for you in your context. Another thing that Kate said and I think this is really important, is that a great teacher never stops learning and a great school never stops improving. And we really need to create a culture in our schools where it's the norm to want to improve our practice, that people readily share ideas about teaching and learning, that they want to engage in professional discussion and professional development, that they're interested in reading about the latest research. And that's why I highly recommend Kate's books, because they are really accessible. And what I mean by that is that, You can read them in small chunks and generally as teachers and leaders in schools, time is at a premium and we don't have a lot of it. So Kate's books, you can just open it, read a section of it, you can take something from it and you can dip in and out when you've got a a few spare moments. And the strategies that she offers in there are what she calls high impact, low effort, which means that it doesn't significantly increase workload of staff to implement the strategies that she suggests. They can be done relatively quickly but they are highly effective so I would highly recommend you go and buy Kate's books. I will put a list of them in the show notes so that you can see them and potentially go and stock your school CPD library with Kate's books because they are brilliant and really easy to use. And I would absolutely highly recommend them. So that's all we've got time for, for this episode. If you would like to get in touch with me because you're interested in one of the group coaching programmes that I run, or you're interested in one-to-one coaching, or supporting creating a coaching culture in your school, you can email me, vicki at or have a look on the website and you can book a chat with me via the link on the website. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourself, take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, Headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.